Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being Black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being Black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott, and each episode I have the privilege, I, I kind of brag about it, that I get to hang out and talk with some of the brightest minds in the country. And not only do I get to talk to the brightest people, I get to talk to them about Black folks. That's like my favorite topic. So it's like a win-win situation. So today's episode, we have a dear friend of mine, longtime colleague and friend, and I'm going to just say his name. I didn't want to read your bio because... When I read people's bios, I never know what you're most proud of. So if you were to meet me in the elevator, why would, why would I want to know you? Tell me a little bit about yourself, Roy S. Johnson. Uh, I would tell you in the elevator that I'm a storyteller and I've been privy to some of the best stories that have occurred over the last 40 years. That's pretty good. Right? Okay, so I will tell you what my what I think should be your greatest claim to fame. <laughs> um, you know, everybody was, was enthralled with the Michael Jordan docuseries. Well, I guess it wasn't about Michael Jordan, was it? Was it about the Bulls? Oh, it was pretty much about Michael Jordan, but it was about the Bulls, but it was certainly... Uh, from his locker. Let's put it that way. It was from go. his perspective. The last dance and um, everyone was just enthralled by having that um, like time capsule back and you actually were uh, in that docuseries talking about your time, but you've been a long time storyteller, but used to primarily tell stories in sports. It's Sports Illustrated and on ESPN with sports reporters. So you've been around, but now you really have focused a lot of your energies as a columnist for AL.com and also as a podcast host yourself with, um, with John Archibald, The Unjustifiable on Record Radio, I know that you are very well versed in the talk with Black folks, particularly when Black folks start talking about Black Wall Street. First question for you is, do you think Black folks talk about Black Wall Street enough? Absolutely not, because we've got to catch up for about 40 years of not talking about Black Wall Street. And what's interesting about Black Wall Street today is it's kind of this thing. It's an entity. Some people talk about it as if this this like Disneyland. You know, it's a, it's a place that, you know, we want to try to recreate that represents this entity that happened almost 100 years ago. But Black Wall Street came out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for those who don't know, when Black folks were given property on the other side of the tracks in this new oil-rich area area called Tulsa, Oklahoma. And between the 1900s and the early early part of the 1920s, took that opportunity to create a self-sustaining community in which African-Americans essentially owned everything, uh, owned homes, homes, owned the stores, owned the transportation system. And outside of Harlem, it was the most thriving economic Black-owned community in the nation, which is where it got the name Black Wall Street. So it was a place uh, where people lived and, and, and loved and went out at night. There were nightclubs, movie theaters, restaurants, grocery stores, barbershops. Of course, we can't have our, our neighborhood without the barbershop and the beauty shop, but it was, it was a, an all encompassing community that for me, and I, I grew up right in the last days of it, not in the 1920s, uh, but as it was existing and, and exiting in the 1950s. But it was really it was it was all about black folks. And so it was really a critical and vital part of our history. So I think a lot of people who are not familiar with Black Wall Street, especially as you are, because you grew up in that area. And as you said, we're kind of more intimately in um, uh, aware of it. Uh, it wasn't taught in our school books that, you know, we had sustaining and sustainable black communities. Uh, we pretty much what we were taught were slaves, wheezes free civil rights. And so I'm curious. About 
Yeah, like that's it. There, there's no story of any thriving communities, any self-sustained communities and how those communities ended. So when you talk about Black Wall Street, obviously I have to ask you, well, why don't we know about Black Wall Street? What happened there in Tulsa um, and, and how you see it showing back up, amazingly enough, in today's history? Well, we don't know about it for a couple of reasons. One is simply because nobody talked about it, not even in Tulsa. And one of the reasons they didn't talk about it was because of the 1921 race massacre. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of that. And for many, many years, it was called a race riot until uh, many of us changed that narrative. He said it wasn't a riot when white people came across the tracks and killed and slaughtered up to 300 black people. That's a massacre. And the reason we didn't hear about it is because there was a conspiracy of silence in Tulsa by both blacks and whites that went on for decades. I have some uh, elders in Tulsa who tell me that when they were kids and tried to ask about it, they were told, don't ask about that. Black folks didn't talk about it because we were embarrassed by it, embarrassed by the fact that so many people were killed uh, and no one was ever prosecuted for that. Whites, who now were the uh, descendants of the people who actually committed the, the crime, were embarrassed to talk about it for some of the same reasons. So as I was growing up, I was born in 1956, I never heard of the massacre in until I became an adult. No one talked about it. It was not, not only was it not taught, it was not discussed. So part of why we don't know our history is certainly because our educational system in this country has not ever taught the full breadth of our history. Not only why we have Black History Month, but we, it should be all year round just to start filling up the gaps. But in specifically in terms of Black Wall Street and the race massacre, we don't know about it because nobody talked about it for almost half a century. Uh, and so we're just beginning to catch up. It's been gratifying for me over the last, I would say, 20 to 25 years for it to be reclaimed, for it to be uh, reintroduced and rebranded as a race massacre as opposed to riot. Now you still find pockets of people that have never heard of it. But because of documentaries, uh, the last survivors just died in the last few years. And so there were discussions with them. They were, they were honoring them. Uh, the fact that the state of Oklahoma two years ago agreed to make a curriculum around Black Wall Street and the massacre was, was really heartening for me. I just read a story today where the Tulsa school system, where I grew up, is introducing a full curriculum from kindergarten through high school where kids will be introduced to Black Wall Street and the massacre on the level that they're able to see it. So we're finally, you know, 60 years later, uh, from the last days of Black Wall Street, finally introducing it into the curriculum. And I'm heartened the kids uh, growing up there and, and other places as well uh, will now be able to learn about their history, whether they're black, white or whatever. That is a significant part of Tulsa's history. I'm so curious when you say that the black folks don't talk about it there or didn't as you were growing up. Why did you use the term that they were embarrassed? I can think angry, hurt, sad, devastated. But you, you use the term embarrassed for both the blacks and the whites. Why, why do you think that? In part, because that's what I heard. That's what they told me that they were they were ashamed that that someone came in and snatched everything away from them, and they felt defenseless. I mean, certainly. Uh, and if you know the story, it began as many of these stories do when a black man accident accidentally bumped into a white woman in an elevator. Uh, he was taken to jail. Whites came to the jail to try to take them out of out of the jail and lynch him. The jailkeeper would not allow that, so they decided they would go to the black part of town. 
and basically just burn it down. Blacks started to hear about it and armed themselves and tried to defend themselves, but they were overwhelmed by the white mob. If you watched The Watchmen uh, last year on HBO or seen Lovecraft Country, those shows have recreated certain elements of Black Wall Street that were frankly kind of challenging to watch, to see something like that recreated and just see a marauding group of people come in and start slaughtering people for no reason. And that's what happened. And again, almost over 300 people were killed and buried in mass graves. Businesses were burned down. People were never compensated because insurance companies refused to pay. It's also heartening now that the state is finally, uh, uh, they came up with funds to try to find some of these graves. And just late last year, forensics and a lot of experts came in and it looks like they have found some of the places where some of these victims were buried. And so uh, some of their family, some of their descendants will start to have closure as they obviously now have better technology to identify it. So I just think they were just embarrassed that this happened to them. They tried to defend themselves and just were unable to do so. I have a friend who helped raise me after my father and parents died and I talked to her uh, a couple of years ago, and she said she tried to ask her grandmother about it. And her grandmother said, don't ever ask me about that again. We don't talk about that. You know, that's how my my granddad was about his time in the military, you know, and it's like a lot of times our side of the story, even though we were not at fault, we don't share those stories because it is devastating. Like you said, embarrassing, disheartening. Um, and so a lot of times we don't even get the stories from the people that could tell us most because they just won't speak about certain parts of history they live through. Uh, and then when you have the people that collect history are not going to tell you, we kind of end up where we are. I'm curious. I know you mentioned it was hard to look at certain parts of, you said, the Watchmen and Lovecraft Country. How does it feel having grown up in that area, been aware since you were an adult, but still probably more intimately aware with the history of Black Wall Street than most? How does that feel seeing it kind of come up like in pop culture? What does that feel like to you? It, it was hard to watch the reenactment because you were watching men and women and children being slaughtered. I am heartened, though, to know that it is now part of the vernacular at, uh, that, that Hollywood, our history books, our educational system are starting to not only recognize and acknowledge the narrative, but to pass it on to, to new generations, to show it in a way that has never been shown before. Uh, I mentioned I grew up in the last days of it, being born in the 1950s. I remember when the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, my father owned a drugstore on Greenwood on the heart of Black Wall Street. So uh, at a soda fountain, at a jukebox, I call it the Black Happy Days. And if, if you know, hopefully folks know what the Happy Days was, but it was yeah. just a hangout, it was after school hangout, it was after church hangout, it was the nighttime hangout. And so that was the environment I grew up in. The restaurant across the street was called Betty's Chat and Chew, which is you know, probably the best name of a restaurant ever. The Rex Theater was right down the street. And so all of that disappeared, of course, after the signing of the Civil Rights Act, and that could be another whole podcast and why our communities disappeared. But within eight to 10 years, they were pretty much all gone. So I feel very blessed and fortunate to have seen the last days, but have been young enough not to have recalled a colored only sign or a white only sign. I do remember a couple of incidents that I experienced with my father, but they weren't the type of, of they weren't on such a level that our lives were in danger or, or, or anything like that. But it falls in line with the just the plethora of indignities that generation suffered that they had to deal with on a day-to-day, everyday basis. And when you go back to why they don't like to talk about them, it's because it brings up how much they had to bite, how much they had to absorb. 
even when there weren't wasn't the magnitude of lynchings and things like that, just the day to day indignities. Uh, and they just got tired. I'm glad that many of them, though, did decide to talk about it uh, in their later years. That did share their stories. Many of the descendants and survivors of the massacre shared their stories in several documentaries. There now have been books written about it. And I'm fortunate to have uh, some elders left who have finally begun to share stories and stories about me as a kid that I'd never heard before. So uh, they are starting to share that now. Uh, and, and I think that's a good thing for all of us because those stories will now be recorded and transposed and translated for future generations. So I'm curious about, you know, since you have always been a storyteller and being curious, would you ever see yourself uh, beyond the podcast, beyond the columns you write that do harken back to it, taking on a larger project to tell more of the stories of Black Wall Street in Tulsa? Oh, I'm writing the memoir right now. Oh, so, okay. Okay. Yeah, Sorry. So, Fresh off the press. That's all right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just curious. Yeah, that, okay. That, that, that book has been talking to me for about a decade. And uh, it was actually my part, one of my COVID projects was to focus and finally sit down and start uh, bringing that to life. So doing that, sharing the story wherever I can uh, with people like yourself. I've uh, had some people approach me about various types of projects related to Black Wall Street. So I'm I'm ecstatic that it's getting its due. I'm ecstatic that it's being celebrated in Tulsa, the 100th anniversary of the massacre. I'm actually going to Tulsa later this year to participate in some of the festivities. So uh, absolutely, it's br- bring it on. Uh, it's a story that continues to need, need to be told in a lot of different areas. And I look forward to participating with anyone who wants to do so. Oh, that's wonderful. So I'm curious, when you say Black Wall Street, I'm making an assumption. So correct me if I'm wrong. When you say Black Wall Street, I feel like you are specifically referring to Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood area. But people have used the term Black Wall Street for other areas like Durham and and Richmond and and other areas where basically it just became what was called a a self-sufficient, thriving Black community with commerce and and a standalone organization. organized community that ultimately all of them were somehow magically destroyed by white folks. But when I say Black Wall Street or you say Black Wall Street, you primarily are referring to Tulsa. Are you thinking, do you think about the other communities that refer to them to uh, as Black Wall Street as just being a, a general concept? Well, certainly I, I'm referring to Black Wall Street in the original vernacular, uh, mm-hmm. Greenwood Avenue, Tulsa, uh, all the things that that really inspired people to come up with the phrase and, and you know celebrate any city that wants to uh, acknowledge and accept that that challenge of being that type of place as well. I think there's a great discussion to be had about what Black Wall Street is today. I call it Black Wall Street 2.0. And when people talk about it today, I encourage them to not so much to think about it as a specific place, a place where businesses are aggregated. First of all, start to think about how we can begin to collectively cooperate and trust each other and bring ideas to the table to either invest in businesses together uh, or create new businesses together. Those businesses can be tech businesses. They can be based anywhere. The investors could be anywhere, but it begins with opportunity to sit down and trust each other. That is one of the things we lost when we lost those collective spaces. We lost the ability to trust each other and to think about prioritizing doing business with each other. Uh, And so if we can regain those things, if we can regain trust in each other, sit down, in groups. It's not going to be all of us, obviously, but sit down in groups. If we can begin to create opportunities to to invest our ideas together, 
invest our monies together. And it could be could be five people in one in one group. It could be 10 over here. It could be 20 over here. Create new businesses that may or may not be targeting black folks. It could just be any type of business. If we can do that and begin to create the kind of wealth, not just for our own families, but the type of wealth that we can pass on to generations, the type of wealth that we can create for other people, then that to me what Black Wall Street should be today. Not so much a place, a geographic place, but a psychographic place where we think together, we invest together, uh, and and not only the people involved win, but others win as well. The the key point of what you said, if we could trust each other. So when I think back to even um, the stories that I've read of the community of slaves on plantations or even just in, in shared spaces or the church or um, in, in the 20s or the 30s, or as you mentioned before, the Civil Rights um, Act, that, that's kind of a disbandment of community, which seems to be the opposite of what everyone was fighting for. Why do you think trust is so hard for us in our own community with each other? And when did that happen, you think? It's the grand question that I think a lot of your academics and philosophers marinate over a lot. You know, I'm just a a country boy from Oklahoma who happens to write stories and who's observed some things. Clearly, our trust was broken you know, uh, hundreds of years ago when families were, were broken apart. Uh, our trust was broken, you know, in the early part of or the middle of the 20th century when we fought for desegregation, but didn't necessarily value what we had. We were so excited to go shopping in other places that we forgot about the places that were in our own neighborhoods. And before we looked up, those places were gone. So, and once that happened, we were dispersed. All of a sudden, we were all in different neighborhoods. We didn't live together. Uh, we didn't. We didn't socialize together in the sense that everybody on on all ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And obviously, we were forced to do that by segregation. So, segregation was not a good thing. Uh, but we made the most of it in the, in the sense that whether you were low income or high income, everybody lived in the same general area. Maybe not next door, because there were certainly different types of neighborhoods. But in my father's store, you had people that would come in and couldn't be able to afford that ice cream sundae. And, you know, he would he would let them go. And then you had people that came in who were regulars, who, you know, were, were some of the wealthiest members of the community. But everybody was in the same essential area and interacted with each other. And once we kind of just got dispersed, and then, of course, we got pitted against each other. We could have another whole conversation about the generation where all of us were the only ones or one of only two coming up and starting to think, you know, the crabs in a barrel started to be created. And, and again, I could go on forever, but it was a slow, systematic effort to diminish, demoralize and, and separate us from each other to the point where we couldn't trust each other because we had to realize maybe if he makes it, I may, I may not make it. If she makes it, I might, not, I might not make it. And we're just, I don't know if we're over that yet. I, I think some of us are and are starting to create pockets of creation, pockets of opportunity, but they're very small pockets. But in general, it's been a tough road and, and we, we still need a lot of therapy to try to get past that. All right. What's interesting is, as you mentioned, I, I, I know that uh, other people have kind of gotten called out for and you had to say segregation was a bad thing. <laughs> but the good things and how we made good things of it is we were a community and we were together. And then once they started letting us in, into their buildings, it wasn't just the community. It wasn't just the stores and businesses. It was the colleges. It was the HBCUs. And so it's one of those things where the white folks didn't necessarily want us mixing with them. We wanted the 
right to be able to if we wanted to. And then we did. And then our communities just kind of just fell apart as a result of this so-called progress. And, and it's not so much that you blame anyone. I'm, I'm probably as emblematic of that generation as anyone. My mother went to Langston and HBCU, but when I got out of high school, the opportunity for me to go to someplace like Stanford University was not there for her. So I took that opportunity and went to a school. This was in the mid seventies. In 1965, the class of eventually of class of 68 only had nine black people in it at Stanford. By the time I got there, there were hundreds. And of course, it was the 70s. You had the Black Panthers. You had a lot of things happening in California. So it wasn't a big deal as, as it might have been in other parts of the country for me to go there. But I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I was 10 years older to go to a place like Stanford. It would have been very unique and, and odd for me to do that. Uh, that was, again, the era of affirmative action where corporations were reaching out to find talented black folks. But when I started at Time Inc. and Sports Illustrated in 1978, you could have got all of the black people in that room that you're sitting in or the, on the room that I'm right. sitting in that were working at the company. So, you know, and, and when I spoke to one of my elders in Tulsa and I asked her why Black Wall Street disappeared, she looked at me and she said, because people like you didn't come back. Mm. That's the first and, time I'd heard it. You... <laughs> and, and she's not wrong about all right. of this. You said yeah. you, you didn't come back to to help the businesses grow. You didn't bring your expertise back to to uh, build the community. You went and took advantage of the opportunities that society was then creating for people like you. So mm. she didn't blame me for not coming back. She just made but you feel was, bad for your success. I know. She made me feel <laughs> bad for a minute. But she just looked, that was the first thing she said, because people like you didn't come back. Mm. And all you can do is shrug and say all over the country, the entire generation that happens. That's the mindset is you don't, you can, you go further, you know, this is what your parents can do. And the next generation goes further than that, than that. And your kids go further than that. And so, no, there is not necessarily this idea of let me go get this education to come back where I started. That's not, I don't think an organic thought for most of us. And if you look at some of the most viable businesses, black owned businesses in our history and talk to uh, descendants because most of the uh, founders are no longer with us, they'll tell you a lot of the same things that, that their children did not necessarily want to be part of that business. They wanted to go work on Wall Street or they wanted to do something in another city. They wanted to teach. And that generation created businesses to enrich their own families, which is, is not a bad thing at all. But if no one comes behind and wants to take over the business, you know, what's the what's the succession plan? And succession planning was not always uh, a priority for some of these founders. And that's why so many of our great businesses didn't survive one, maybe two generations before they ultimately were uh, diminished and disappeared. I think that's also the generational curse that has been passed down is that we don't have the concept or attachment to generational wealth like our counterparts do. They have they believe they should leave something <laughs> and we're just trying to make it and get mine and y'all work it out. Talk amongst yourselves when I'm gone. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> a lot of elements to that. Some of that's even just insurance. I, I remember, you know, pay, my people, my parents age, they had enough insurance to pay for the funeral. That's what my parents thought insurance was for. I went to my parents sent me to a predominantly white private school and middle school and high school. So as I grew and began to know them and their families and obviously stayed in touch with many of them as adults, when their parents died, they left six-figure insurance policies that mm -hmm. allowed them to 
put a down payment on the house that allowed them to then invest that and send their kids to college. So some of that was just the mindset of a generation that probably overpaid for insurance. You know, how many of our grandparents paid that $25 or 25 cents or a dollar every week person came by to pick up the the premium. They put more money into it than they got out. And then when they, when they passed away, the policy was like $10,000, which was barely enough to pay for the funeral. And that's it. Today with all these resources and access, you see people forming GoFundMe to pay for people's funerals. So it's somewhere mentally, right? Because I think about, yeah, how our grandparents or great grandparents, they were so proud to build what they could to save mm-hmm. what they could to, to, you know, your dad's store was a, a pace, place, pace, place of pride and, and community. And so as we have gained more access and resources and, and opportunities, it seems like that idea has definitely lessened in our community, um, that that's not necessarily the, the driving force. And I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about myself included when you say that you didn't come back. I did go back home, but it wasn't, it wasn't a calculated thought of, oh, let me take everything I've learned and go back home. I just was kind of like, let me go home because everybody out here is crazy. Right. <laughs> So by default, I was able to lend my talents to my community, but it wasn't, I can tell you, it wasn't a calculated thought of, hey, I'm going to go back home and save my community. So I'm curious about how, when we got better, we got worse, you know? And we also didn't share a lot of information. Sometimes with families, you know, your parents don't want to tell you what what they have. They don't want to share your information. I've pretty much shared almost everything that we have, I have as an asset with my two children who are 26 and 20. They don't always want to hear it because, right. you know, they think I'm talking about dying. I said, nope, I'm stuck for another 35 years here. You stuck with me. I just <laughs> okay. want you to know where everything is and what's here and what's built for you. And, and you know, I've already told my kids, my job is to spend your inheritance. I got you through college. <laughs> you got you started right. on your way. My job is now to spend your inheritance. So, uh, but they know, you know, they, they know whatever, where everything is, but we don't share that with our, with our kids. Our parents didn't share it with us. So financial literacy, financial, uh, transparency, those are the foundations. And if we can just begin to start to do some of those things, doesn't matter what society does. If we can sit down and decide, okay, we're going to create a financial plan for our family. And it's tough for families that are just trying to get by. I totally acknowledge that. And there's so many in our community that are just trying to to live day to day. And that's not necessarily uh, practical. Those aren't practical discussions for, for everyone in our community, but for people who are able to do more than they think. If you don't prioritize that, then it won't happen. You know, right. if, if you don't prioritize paying yourself first, saving, figuring out an investment plan, then it'll, it'll never happen. There are a lot of young professionals that have the opportunity to do that. It's just not a priority because maybe it wasn't taught to them. So I do think we have more control over that going forward than we like to think. And we can't wait on, we can't wait on just as, as, as our, our predecessors were in this bubble of segregation and had to do for themselves. We can't wait on society to fix anything for us. And we do have pockets of opportunity to do for ourselves. And if we don't start doing that now, then that's on us. Okay, that leads me to the perfect segue. We like to end each episode of the History of Being Black with a challenge to our listeners called hashtag be the change. We like for our guests to offer us what we can do, action items. And so I feel like you've offered quite a few just in conversation, but how would you wrap up if someone had to say, I heard Roy S. Johnson today on the History of Being Black, and he said, if I could do this, I would be the change. What, what could you offer us? Start thinking about a financial plan. Start thinking about the numbers. You know, no matter how much you make, 
whether you are a, a an entrepreneur who is starting a business, who is, is in the middle of a business, or if you're working in a great career, think about the numbers. Uh, think about a, a 10, 15, 20-year plan for investing in yourself. So the hashtag was anything. It was invest in you. Invest in you, create a plan, sustain the plan, follow the plan, and you'll thank yourself 10, 15, 20 years down the line when you created something that had nothing to do with what society did, with what systems did. But invest if you invest in you, then ultimately you'll be able to pay you when it matters most. Thank you so much for that. You don't get to come on here and change our hashtags, though. So, y'all, the hashtag can still be the change. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Always enlightening to talk to you, to listen to your podcast and to read your columns. Even more fun to read the comments uh, to your (laughs) columns. But that's a whole other show. My fan club. Uh, Hopefully you'll come back and see us uh, for another episode. We would love to have you back. And for all you listening, don't forget, make sure you share your action items, what you did to be the change. We'd love to hear it. Just use the hashtag be the change and also tag the history of being black so we can make sure we celebrate you, share it with our friends and communities. And we all want to figure out what we can do to make it better. So until next time, you guys take care. and We'll see you on the next episode of the history of being black. Thanks, Roy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.